There are stories that must be told of courage, triumph, that inspire action, teach valuable lessons. Once Upon a Time shares stories from business leaders, mavericks, and trailblazers. Annette Densham will share stories of those quietly creating magic. This story begins as all good stories should. Once Upon a Time. Welcome. Thank you for joining me for Once Upon a Time. Today, I am joined in the studio live face-to-face, which is really exciting because I can see her sparkling eyes, is Louise Geary. Now, Louise mentors women who want more than just to cope with the demands of life. So she helps them find joy and happiness. And we're going to talk about that, that we actually need help to find joy and happiness. Louise is a spiritual healer and a teacher of art of feminine presence. So she helps women heal their deep emotional pain or stuckness so they can be open to their own feminine spirit. Louise is a mum. She's got a husband. She's got two kids. As I just said, she's a mum. One of them was born injured. So this has led her to walk the path of empowerment. So to help him function in a world that imposes unreasonable stigmas on kids with disabilities. We've got a lot to talk about. Louise, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Annette. It's lovely to be here. It's excellent. Now, before we started this interview, we'd started the interview without recording it. But I wanted to talk to you is a thing that I find my my brain has trouble grasping is why, as women, we need help to be feminine. I mean, you would think that it would come naturally to us, wouldn't you, because (laughs) we're women. Why is that? What's the go? Well, I think it does come naturally, Annette. I think it's just that... The demands of our busy lives sometimes. There's many, many reasons why we might just cut off from that a bit, cut off from our feminine energy. Sometimes in our kind of world, it's just because we feel as though we have to fit into a masculine model in the workplace. And there's a sense that if we are too feminine, we might not get things done. We won't be efficient enough. We won't get the work done. We won't be clear enough or rational enough. And all of those things are they're assumptions that we make anyway, but sometimes you can get pressured into that in a workplace. And there are lots of other reasons why we might cut off from our feminine energy. And some of those are to do with cultural and religious reasons, things to do with abuse that women might cut off from their feminine energy. So often we are operating because women, it's so easy to operate from our heart and with our heart energy, because we are naturally loving and It's expected that women are giving, and we are. So we operate really easily from heart energy, but sometimes if we disconnect from the bottom half of our body, we can become really drained doing that, just giving, 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 and it's all heart energy, and we're not actually centred or grounded in our bodies. So a lot of the work that I do is around reconnecting to the bottom half of your body, which I know might sound a bit weird, but... We have been encouraged a little bit to disconnect from our feminine energy because it's been demonised, because it's been almost considered sometimes that it's not quite right to be too feminine. It's really sad, isn't it? It is. It is sad because I know when I look at myself in the mirror, it's like sometimes I think my face looks really hard and it's like, how did I get to this place of harshness Mm. when used to enjoy playing with dolls and doing the mummy and the daddy thing when you were a kid and and now we're talking about being gender 
specific. It's almost like it's wrong to be a man or a woman. Mm. So we got, we're not only going to have women who need help healing, but we're going to have men who don't know what to do either. Definitely, definitely, and I think that's really happening. And a lot of this work that I teach, the Art of Feminine Presence work, is around developing your feminine energy again, really reconnecting to that, and developing a polarity between you and your partner if you have a male partner because sometimes both of us have shifted to the middle so there's no polarity and when that happens you often lose the sexual attraction and sometimes that's what happens in a relationship you know when you get to about the 10 year mark and you're thinking no I just want to go to sleep tonight (laughs) 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 we're tired and you've kind of lost that a little bit part of that is because we've lost the magnetic attraction we've lost the polarity between us so if a woman moves more towards the feminine energy and a man moves more towards the masculine energy, then that attraction increases again. Now, that's not, doesn't mean that a man has to be really blokey and tough and. Come here, woman. Drink a lot of beer. Make me some eggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go out then and change the tyre. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that women have to wear pink and be pretty and fluffy because that's not feminine. Feminine's really powerful and really strong. And. Masculine can be really gentle and really giving, you know. We have all these assumptions around what they are and sometimes women are afraid to be feminine because they think they have to wear high heels and lots of makeup, you know, and that's not it at all. When you connect to your own natural energy, which most of the time in women their natural energy is a feminine energy, when you connect to that essence, then it just magnifies who you are like tenfold, a thousandfold, you can actually just walk into a room and be seen without doing anything. It's very powerful wow. and it's very peaceful. That's, the I think, for me, the biggest thing about this work. When I first started doing it and learnt one of the foundational practices, I realised how often I was actually living in my kind of head cloud of busy, busy, confusing thoughts, the rush, 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 rush thoughts. So it's not my intellect, it's just that, I've got to get this done and, oh, that's wrong and the critical and the judgmental and all of those things. I was living in that all the time and there's a deep anxiety around in that kind of energy. It's very uncomfortable. And when you drop home into your own core, you might still feel that energy around you and those busy thoughts are still there, but you're not being run by them anymore. It's a bit like being in a pinball machine, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's a good analogy. (laughs) As you were talking, I'm imagining this little ball with my face on it. That's good. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Smack. Yeah. 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 So you drop into that peaceful place, which is in your own core, and you can find so much more clarity, so much more peace. You connect more deeply. You're not being distracted by random confusing thoughts that aren't helping you make any decisions or move forward or anything really. So how did you get into this type of work? <sighs> Desperation. Desperate. <laughs> Mother of all necessity. I um Kara, my oldest son, has cerebral palsy, so his needs quite high. He's a beautiful boy, we love him dearly, and he's got lots to say and do. But because his needs were quite high, we I was very busy and I actually had to, I stopped working when I had him. He's my older son. And then I had another son who's a beautiful boy as well and we love him dearly too. His needs aren't quite as high, just the average 11-year-old's needs. 
I had to re-establish who I was and basically I re-established myself as a carer for a long time. I'm now at that point where I can move back into the workforce again and start doing some things other than being just a full-time carer. The process to get there, it did take me into a really deep hole. Breathe. <laughs> There's nothing that will prepare you for having a child with a disability. There's no way that you can know what that will be like until it happens. And I did know, I thought, I did have quite a fair idea because I have worked a lot with people with disabilities. I didn't, really didn't know until I had my oldest son. It changed my life forever. It has changed my life for the better. At this point I can say that because what it made me do in the end, because I was so depleted, I was giving so much and not just had no energy to actually fill myself up in any way. I was so exhausted that I had to find something because I knew I wasn't going to be able to go on. I actually got to a point where I had hit rock bottom and I got up one morning and had my epiphany at the sink that I called. At the kitchen, I, kitchen at sink? At the kitchen sink. Go to the kitchen sink. <laughs> I stood there and knew that I was pretty broken and that my family was pretty broken and that I didn't want us to keep living like that. I didn't want to keep going just pulling myself through every day, being unhappy, not enjoying my relationship, enjoying my life, no, not many friends, you know, nothing. And I wasn't doing any work that was giving me any kind of joy either. It's pretty isolated, isn't it? Extreme when you have a child with disability. And, you know, you spend a lot of time talking to therapists and going all over the place, but you don't actually have time to have friends. You don't have connection. Yeah. And some people, you, you can lose some connections because some people don't quite know how to manage, especially if they see you in that frantic state where you just... Mm. It's hard to connect to someone anyway when they're that depleted and that frantic. Because what do you say to yeah, somebody? Yeah. It's like, oh, you say, I how can I help? Yeah, how, that's yeah, what you say. Yeah. Can I cook you a meal? Can, can I do I your dishes? Yeah, <laughs> can I come fold your washing? For yeah, you? can I talk to you? Let's have a cup of tea while we fold some washing. Yeah. That's what you do. It's easy. People just need a little bit of gentleness and kindness usually. It's interesting, mm. isn't it, that, like, I don't understand that. My 11-year-old has autism. Mm. So mm. different needs. But, again, getting people to understand that his outbursts and, and the way that he deals with things is not just him being naughty, mm. is that there is a something going on in his brain, which means that that's how he deals with things. Yes. And people who look at him and go, or look at me and go, what type of mother are you? <laughs> and I just think, I wish you could see, I'd just stick my middle finger out and go, the best type of mother. But that people, we are awkward when things don't fit into a box. Mm. If mm. someone close to you dies, yeah. we don't know what to say. Mm. If you have a child with a disability and we don't know what to say. If you're sick, yes. we don't know what to say. Yeah. Instead of, you don't have to say anything. No. How about a hug? That's it. Just mm. a bit of gentle touch or just some kind of offer. Mm. I often cook a meal because <laughs> I just think, well, I know that really helped me and that's an offer. You're just making that connection out to people. But then it's also the other way around, isn't it, Louise, is accepting 
that offer of help because, you know, mm. if we're talking about we're mm. not quite sure how to be feminine anymore, we're actually not quite sure how to accept help from our community, from our village, because we've now been taught we've to got to be stoic and suck yes. it up. and Yeah, and to be really self-sufficient. And I think that's something for women again that we have become, thanks to the 70s and the 60s perhaps, we actually did learn to be independent. We did get our own bank accounts. We were allowed to get back into the workforce and earn some money, you know, and there's still some challenges around those things. Sometimes in a relationship with a man and a woman, and I know I've done that because I'm really independent and was very independent before I met Mark, my husband, so I just do stuff. And sometimes you just need to step back and women, we can get really cross about doing all the work, about your husband not actually doing what you wanted to do and having to be told or all of those things. But sometimes it's because we look so efficient and so self-sufficient that some people don't know how to help. So that's that same thing with friends or community around a child with a disability because you look like you're really managing because mm. I certainly did. So people don't quite know what to do. So if you do it with a, with a partner, if you can just step back a little bit, you don't have to be helpless. You just don't necessarily always have to manage everything. And then maybe your partner might just step up because you've left some space for him to do that. He probably wants to. I exactly. Went to, went to an emotional healing workshop two years ago and I am like you, very independent, you know, grew up needing to look after myself. And with my husband is that over the years I've just managed to push him not physically to the side, but, you know, I don't need you to help because I've got this all under control. Mm. And then resenting it. Yes. And it's like. Yeah. They can't the, win. Yeah. So here <laughs> I've got his poor little balls in my handbag. Sorry, big balls. In my handbag. Because I've disempowered him by not allowing him to step into his power. That's and it's hard letting yes. that go and yes. letting yeah. him do that. Mm. So a lot of the work in the Art of Feminine Presence is around things like that. Actually, just another side of that is that women, we think that we have to give all the time because we're very giving and loving and kind. But actually a feminine energy, you know, the yin energy is about being receptive rather than giving all the time. So it's not a totally natural energy for us to give all the time, which doesn't mean that we don't give. And for a masculine energy, it is about doing, action and giving, you know. So sometimes when we actually just allow ourselves to step back and receive, then we give the man that space to do that. So a lot of the practices in Art of Feminine Presence are around teaching women how to do that, how to receive and to feel okay about that. The majority of women, if I stand up in front of a group and ask them, is it a nat- what's what do you see as a more natural energy for women, you know, giving or receiving? They'll also giving. Very few of them will say receiving unless they've done some work with me before. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a trick question. I know the answer to this. <laughs> yeah, because that's what you're supposed to do. But it actually exhausts us. We become adrenalised and that's not natural for us, the adrenalised energy. So this- we have to balance that out. So we still give, but we have to learn how to receive. And some women think, that it's wrong to receive, that they shouldn't be allowed to. There's this real hold on allowing ourselves to receive. Is that a cultural thing? Is that like it sounds very Victorian? 
that does a little almost bit. got to pull yes. it, course it in. Yes, and, and goes along with pleasure because receiving is about pleasure and we've certainly got to think about feeling pleasure in our bodies and all of those things again link back to being disconnected from our sexual energy it is. And, you know, there's so much cultural and religious matter around that idea that a woman's body is a bit, it has been demonised. It could be seen as a bit evil or a bit dirty, mm-hmm. sinful and distracting. <laughs> so we've all cut off from that a little bit. Do you see, like, like particularly if you look in the media and we're looking at Kim Kardashian and those celebrities and, you know, she posted a photo the other day of her very naked body posing to prove she was pregnant Mm. It's like this pressure on those women in the public eye. Mm. It must be, no wonder there's drug problems and high rates of divorce and mental illness because we're not only subconsciously giving them those messages they're not good enough, we're then parading them across the media. Yeah, I think it's really sad. I don't pay a lot of attention to it, so I didn't really realise that Kim Kardashian had done that, but I do so know who she is. is. Yeah, so she's <laughs> pregnant, so just, just come here for all the gossip, tell you. <laughs> I think it's really sad, and not knowing much about that, but I do think often women who are in the media a lot, there's an enormous focus on how they present physically, and so they, they can become really focused on it themselves, and their whole identity is around that, on which... I think, you know, can lead to that, the need to Botox and to not age, mm. which, again, I feel personally is a little bit sad to feel like we're not like it old as women because our wisdom comes with age. Mm. I'm much happier now than I was when I was 22. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot more and I feel a lot more comfortable in my own body. Those women are just, there's so much pressure on them to look a certain way and also that, that pans out so much to our young women, our young girls, and this idea that they're meant to look like, well, sticks, really, prepubescent boys. Women aren't meant to look like that. We're meant to be curvy and gorgeous. Mm. I suppose Kim Kardashian is, is she? She is very curvy <laughs> and she's very gorgeous. Yeah. And she looked yeah. freaking hot <laughs> as, I don't know how long, far pregnant yeah. she was, but I, I kept going back to the picture and thinking, you're gorgeous. Yeah. You're gorgeous. Why do you keep having to prove how gorgeous you are? Mm. And again... That's what I love about this work because it's, it's very much about women being seen for who they are. So the group work actually supports that so that it's a really safe place for women, a really safe circle, and you get recognised for who you are, for your qualities, not for what you look like. And it's amazing. Every woman in that room will just be shining and beautiful by the end of the day. <laughs> Sounds like something that we need to be teaching our young women, yes. you know, 13, 14-year-olds mm. when they start high school. You've got an 11-year-old. I'm mm. starting to see these girls in my son's year being consumed with what they wear and how they look and who they're listening to. Mm. And my son, who's almost 15, the girls that he hangs around with and just this I don't know, it's hard to explain, but almost this fragility, which is is master's bluster. Mm. And it's like, how do we stop that for you? Because 
Yeah. I think I'm screwed up. What are they going to be like under all the pressures society puts on them when they get to my age? I think that can be a real issue for them, that there's a lot of different pressures on them because there's so much about the world than we did when I was a teenager, you know. It's a little bit harder to get news then. Now it's just right in your face. But I think I think we can stop them from experiencing everything as teenagers. I think that's part of how they build their brains. You know, there's all that research now about how your brain pairs down from about 12 to 15. It's like pruning a tree. So, I mean, you just got to give them, try and give them some good experiences, I suppose. I feel like I'm working in the dark myself with teenagers. It's not my area. Mm. I work with women, adult women. I have a friend, a colleague in Melbourne who's working with teenage girls and doing this kind of work, and it's really powerful, I think. Yeah, important, yeah. Like getting them before they get to... Yeah, so that they actually feel... So that they can weather those years. I'm going to have changes and you you have those huge hormonal swings and you don't know who you are and it's hard to make decisions and that's partly because your brain's actually paring down. Mm. But you just have to kind of... If we give them a good enough foundation, yeah, they can get through it. Well, that's the... The core, isn't it, is that yeah. you've got to have a good foundation. Mm. Otherwise, you're at sea without a rudder yeah. and an oar and you're just floating around going, oh, I'll just go over here and see how this works. <laughs> isn't that what parenting's about? <laughs> oh, yes. Rudderless. I am a rudderless sailing reader. So when I was pregnant, I read everything I could about this person I was about to bring into the world. And it was totally useless. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, that wasn't in the book. I know. And then you have a, a, another one and it's completely different again. Yeah. I think my mum had seven. I think by the time you get to the seventh, maybe you might have a bit of a handle on it. But <laughs> you said that you're from country Victoria. I am, yes. So that would have been a, a wonderful experience, like now that you've got comparison. Yes. Growing up the yeah. country compared to the city. Yeah, and I actually still... There's a little part of me that yearns for that still because, you know, we just, we actually didn't have a key to our house. We used to go away to the beach for two weeks and not lock the house because <laughs> we were just out on a farm and, you know, everything was open and that's my memories of it. Of course, my siblings probably have different memories, but windows are always open, you know, there's just so much space around us and I just ran through the summer and I didn't wear shoes and it was seemed very free in a lot of ways. Probably other ways it wasn't free, but just that openness and quiet. That would be cool. Where did you yeah. fit in the seventh? Seventh. I was seventh. So you're the youngest. Mm. You're the baby. Mm. Hey. My father was still introducing me at this as a baby when I was about 30. <laughs> <laughs> He's my baby. Mm. I know when my, I've got a younger sister, so she's just turned 43, and I still call her Little Legs, which is her childhood nickname, <laughs> and she's taller than me. <laughs> So it kind of sticks to I know. It's a fondness. It's yeah. a, to me, it's like remembering the good times that we had as yeah. kids. Yeah, and I, I, that's important. I, I have some beautiful memories of childhood, you know, sleeping out on the lawn at night when it was really hot in the summer and just looking at the stars. Wow. Sleeping all night outside. Yeah, and there would have been yeah. so many. Yeah, beautiful. How cool. So did we have six brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so you had a mix? Mm, yes. Did you get in any trouble? Did they lead you astray? <laughs> I was a fair bit younger. See, my, when I started primary school, my older sister was starting teacher's college. Wow. So, you know, there's a bit of spread. I don't know if I remember that. I was a bit naughty, but I'm probably with my friends more than with my siblings. 
I think about the things I did as a kid. And it's like, I hope my children don't do that. <laughs> That's what one of my sisters said to me. <laughs> She's, she, does, she knows what, what her girls can do and she doesn't want them to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how did I do that? Mm. But I think, like, oh, my mother was very strict, so I think mm. mine was more about rebelling and getting out there. But now so I just rebel in different ways. <laughs> yeah. So your eldest son mm. has cerebral palsy. Yes. How old is he? He's 14. So does he go to high school? Yeah, he's at Aspley Special School, yep. high school. He went mainstream for primary and back to um, special school for high school, which has been great. And primary school is great too, but it's been really good to get into a system where they can support him with therapy a bit more mm. because he really needs You know, as they get older, and especially going through those teenage years again, your muscles and everything, everything's affected by the hormones. So we really need to keep him moving. He's walking in a walking frame. He just walked 1.3 kilometres to our local deli to have gelato. Oh, that's amazing. Because <laughs> he can't hold himself up on his own, but he can step and wait bare. So we've got this um, really nice walking frame that supports him. So he did that with the help of his therapist, but she's just holding the frame. He's walking on his own. So with cerebral palsy, it's more about the body, isn't it? The brain. Yeah, it's is... brain damage and... So some of the pathways don't work depending on where the brain damage is and it affects how you control your muscles. So he'll want to, like he might want to pick something up and everything will fire so his arms and his legs will go and he actually won't be able to control his hands. He doesn't have that kind of fine motor to pick something up. So That's he could communicate? simplified version. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. worked for the cerebral palsy yeah. man for yeah. a, a little while, so I've got a bit got of an insight. So he can communicate? He communicates really clearly. He can't speak. Okay. And we're just in the process of getting speaking devices. and So a speaking machine with software and a little machine thing on the top that will read his eye movement so he can control it with his eyes. Wow. Which is really cool. It's a lot of work. It's really hard to do. Yeah, it'd be but tiring. Yeah, yeah. But it means that he'll have direct access to complex language in the software on the machine. So he'd be, I remember seeing a story about a, a girl with like severe autism and mm. everyone thought that she was also had an intellectual disability mm. as well, mm. that there was nothing there until she discovered, I can't remember what the device was, but she started writing stories. Yeah, a and Toby or something probably. Yeah, and people went, oh, my God. Mm. She has this amazing intellect. It's really easy to, you know, again, like women, misjudge people and go, you've got a disability, you have nothing of value to give. I know. That's something that we come up against all the time and I have to, I just talk to Dylan, my son, about that and just say that he's, we're here to educate and to advocate for people with disabilities and we have to educate all the time because people will talk to him as though he's a baby because he's quite little. And because he can't answer back, you know, if he could speak back in a big teenage voice, they wouldn't talk to him like that. Yeah. Get stuff. (laughs) (laughs) He's really, really, um, he loves people. So he usually gets people to connect with him because he smiles and, you know, makes eye contact. And he does yes and no answers really easily. It can be really distressing sometimes because people just, they don't know how to. You know, I've had a very good friend just recently talk about that. She runs the sensitivity unit at Dylan's previous school, and she talks about that to the kids who come in to learn about what it's like to have a disability, that she talks about Dylan. When she first met me and met Dylan, 
she just used to think, what kind of a life has he got? And now that she knows him, she thinks, well, he takes bigger chunks out of life than most people. You know, he loves life. He's got a real passion for it and he loves it. But you have to slow down. For someone who can't speak, with people with autism, you have to slow down Mm. and really take them in and let them, you know, you have to get back into that receptive mode so that you can just really see them and let them give of themselves Mm. instead of just sitting there, you know, trying to dig it out of them and then saying, (laughs) right, there's nothing there. And that's it, I'm off. You're boring. And, you know, that's a metaphor for our lives. We're not slowing down anyway. We're all so busy all the time. We haven't got time to connect or to go out to that show or do this and do that. We're so busy doing, oh, God knows what, but we're all so busy. We all need to slow down, step back, step back into our bodies, take a breath and think, I'm going to stay here for five minutes and look at my son and just have a conversation with him and hear what he has to say. (laughs) Or even just have quiet time with yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like put the phone down and... Turn it off. Yeah, like... I went to Melbourne last week. I was catching the tram. So I'm tempted to sit there as we all do, poking. Here I am in Melbourne, there's all these sites, and I'm on the tram poking <laughs> on my phone. And I'm like, what am I doing, you stupid yeah. woman? Mm. Put my phone in my bag and looked out the window. There's a concept. <laughs> out the window. I know, and Melbourne's beautiful from a tram. It's great. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. Mm. But you, I sit there and go, when was the last time I was bored? Because mm. I have to say to my son, Quinn, who's has autism, that he's got to be entertained all the time. Yeah. I'm bored. Yeah. He came out to me the other night. He said he's just been tucked in. Two minutes later, he's out of bed. Oh, I can't get to sleep. I'm bored. <laughs> You're in bed. I know. I reckon that generation probably have it a little bit, that'll be a bit harder. Yes. Because there's so much more to entertain us. You know, you've always got an iPad or a phone or a computer or a TV. Yeah. It's going, like just, going, 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 going. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's like <gasps> hyperactivity times yeah. 27. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so teaching people to slow down, full-on concept these days, I'm creating, I'm really excited, I'm creating this new program. It's just a very simple online program where I'm going to send people a tip each week and just a little bit of a discussion around something. And so the first week's tip is about how to sit still. (laughs) So simple. (laughs) It's so simple. But people, I actually do teach people how to sit so that they can actually sit up and sit for longer than about five minutes without getting a sore back. People don't know how to. We often, most people sit like this. You're sitting straight. I sit straight. I try to sit straight. Mm. And so do I. But I actually have to teach a lot of my students how to do that. To sit still and straight. Yeah, and to sit like this. So you're sitting on your pelvic floor and not sitting on your lower back. Because if you kind of slouch back onto your sacrum, you get a really sore back. Yes. You can't meditate like that. No. You can't sit for very long. Yeah, so that's the first tip. How to sit. And the next one's about breathing. Is there a video? There's a video on how to sit and it's really funny. (laughs) Does it feature you in it? It features me putting my hands under my bottom and showing people where to put their bottom on the seat. We get to see Louise's bottom. (laughs) It's got clothes on it, it's all right. (laughs) It's pretty boring. (laughs) How to sit. So what's the second week? The second week's about breathing. The third week is about 
I'm calling it finding your Mount Cooper because when my younger son was born, a month after he was born, Dylan started having seizures and he just kept increasing, 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 and he wasn't sleeping. We would just go up to him every 10 minutes all night and he'd be having seizures all through the night. And we were just, we were nuts. We were not sleeping either. And your whole personality changes when you don't get enough sleep, <laughs> like severely. It's, it's like a, being on drugs. It's definitely a form of torture, sleep deprivation. And so one of us would put the kids in the car and drive up to Mount Cooper and we'd get, you know, I can remember like driving up and you get up into that clear air and the kids would relax, Dylan's reflux would settle and they'd go to sleep. You just pull up the car and just sit there. And look at the view. It was beautiful. <laughs> Get this tap. Yeah. Excuse me, madam. Does your husband uh, know where you are? <laughs> yeah, sitting on one of those those little lover's lanes up on Mount Cooper. <laughs> but it was just about finding that calm place. So that's actually what it's about. Really. Finding the calm yeah, place. Yeah, finding just a place that helps you feel peaceful when things are really crazy. So what motivated you to create that program? Because I think people really need it. You know what really did it? Going to yoga one night, or oh, quite a few nights in a row actually, and not being able to stay still in the relaxation part, I'd get this kind of, and it was real twitchy leg, you know, where women get yeah. that kind of magnesium deficient, I think it's magnesium deficient, um, twitchy leg thing. I'd be there kind of twitching away while we're supposed to be relaxing. I was thinking, I can't lie still for longer than about five minutes. This is ridiculous. So I started really looking at the things that I already knew about myself and thought this is something that probably a lot of people need. So in each one, I've got the ideas, I haven't created all of them yet, it's in process. There's just something like that, probably a little bit of a personal story like the Mount Cooper one and things like that and a, something a bit inspirational and a tip, hmm. maybe video, maybe an MP4. Cool. Yeah. It's a bit it's exciting. Amazing. I'm really excited about it. It is yeah. amazing. Like, yeah. I think... Of my mother's generation, that when you retire, when you got to, you know, your, your mm. mid-60s, mm. that it was kind of all over Red Rover, <laughs> that you went off and you did your CWA community or you, you volunteered at the church bay. <laughs> That's the sum of your life. And if you're lucky enough to have grandkids, you got to look after them in mm. school holidays. But now as women of the 21st century, like mm. our generation, mm. Generation X, yeah. is that we can just keep creating. I know. We're, lucky. we're so lucky with the electronic media and that we can all do it. Mm. You're creating a podcast. But do you find it interesting, though, that when I was a kid, I used to lie there and close my eyes and see if I could catch my thoughts in words to see if I could physically see my thoughts. Wow. And I still do. And I I find I have these thoughts where now people will be knocking on the door going, we've come to take you away. (laughs) (laughs) Is that I think about the the opportunities that are available to us and I get really excited and then I try and capture those as pictures and (laughs) thoughts. But for us as women now is we have this getting excited, my hands are going, (laughs) we have this, World where we're not allowed to get old, mm-hmm. that we've got to put cream on, but the opportunities open to us in terms of mm. women our age, but women our age, we'll get mm-hmm. the Zimmer frame out, 
<laughs> can go and create a new business. Like my business mm. started in my 40s. Yeah. We used to be, if you're going to make it, you wanted to bloody well do it when you were <laughs> 20. And now in our 40s, we're creating new businesses, we're creating programs, mm. we're reaching out, we're touching people. So it's like this whole hypocrisy that we're standing there going to the community who's empowering us to do this anyway to go get nicked. <laughs> I'm going to be creating until I'm 80. Yeah. I think we're being more supportive to do that now. I know my husband's supporting me to do that. You know, really keen for it. I don't know. I think those things, you know, like you're saying that we have, we're not supposed to get old, we have to stay young and beautiful and Botoxed. <laughs> And this other side where we're actually really coming into our own at our in our 40s and 50s and 60s, I think they'll balance each other out in the end, you know, as women start to really develop a sense of who they are, through their, partly through their work and how they express themselves to the world, then maybe that need to look like you're 20 when you're actually 50 will diminish a little bit for a lot of women. It'll be okay to look yeah. however you are and, and like maybe... Yeah whether you're 50 or whether you're 25, mm. won't matter mm. because it'll just be based on well, that's right. what you do. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, you get women to accept. But just to connect to who you are. And yeah. I say that on my website that I help women love themselves even the bits they don't like. You know, that's the thing. You have to accept that maybe you've got wobbly thighs or, I don't know, flappy ears or whatever it is. <laughs> got something there's not many of us that are just totally gorgeous all over in that kind of classical sense but all of us are gorgeous it's just once you start once you feel good about yourself then people look at you and think wow she's gorgeous because you think you are yeah (laughs) it's true isn't Mm. it like the best the compliments i get are those days where i just walk out and go I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) And people go, wow, you look awesome today. What have you done? Mm. I'll wash my hair. (laughs) I'm home in my body and I'm loving it. Yeah, but it's for women is for us to get there all the time. Yeah. Not just when we wash our hair. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) It's a work in progress. That's what my work is. That's very much what it's about. And for me, you know, it's taken me time to get to that point too. You know, that's a real progression. To feel good enough about myself, to know that when I walk out the door, it doesn't matter what I've got on. That's another one of my videos. I'm going to do this without makeup video. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm just, you know, one of the things with creating video and all of those things, which I knew I kind of needed to do to get online properly with my work, I kept putting it off because I didn't have the right lighting, I didn't have the right cameras, I didn't have this, that, and didn't put on makeup and didn't have the right clothes. Then one day, inspired by one of my mentors, Monica Mandela, I just thought, right, I'm just going to do it because that's what she did. And I got up without makeup on and I stood in front of my own computer <laughs> with the lounge room. I moved all the unfolded clothes out of the way and the ironing board and just did it. And they're fine. It's not Hollywood style. And, and I hear what you're saying because you've got people out there, the professionals and, you know, the slick mm. PR people mm. saying you've got to have yeah. this brand and it's mm. got to be locked in and you've got to have the set done. And mm. for me, one of the biggest engagements I get is when I do what I call car cam. Yes. And it's like I've been inspired to say something. Like I did one the other. I almost got hit by a semi-trailer <laughs> in my car. Like freaked me out. Totally. Mm. Like my whole day had been crap. Yeah. And I've pulled over and, and you can see in the video how emotional I am and how mm. shaken I am. And it was like, I've got to share this 
because what is social media if not a platform for me to not just share my happy snaps and how wonderful yeah. my life is, yeah. but those moments when I'm truly not at mm. my best mm. or I don't look. So, yeah. God, I, I want to see that video. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I will see it. Uh, well, I'm thinking I'll put it up as a just a little thing on my website for people to – so I have to kind of think about how I'll do it. I've made one, but I think I need to do it again. But I really want it to be about people realising that it's all right just to be who you are and, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I like if you people, even more now. Well, that's right. People get to know you. Yeah. If you've got, you know, black rings under your eyes or yeah, well, the, the, yeah, <laughs> you're wearing the, your gym jams. I'm wearing I, I, I did get out of my gym jams for you today. I did keep my I socks on. I like the socks. My, my socks from Nepal, which yeah. I haven't been to, but <laughs> that's where my socks are from. <laughs> Louise, when you were 22, mm. how did you see your life going? Well, not like this. Not like this. <laughs> not like this at all. I think about that sometimes because... You do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. Everyone probably has a bit of an idea about how their life will be. And I assumed that at some point I'd have kids. I didn't assume that I'd have a child with a disability. I didn't assume that ever that I'd be teaching work about how to connect to your, the bottom half of your body. <laughs> That's probably scared off half your viewers now, hasn't yeah. <laughs> it? She's but, sitting there without a bottom half. How does she do that? How to connect to your feminine energy or your feminine essence. I just couldn't imagine it. At 22, I was travelling up the Queensland coast, I think, and uh, working, drinking a lot, partying a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, I went right up to Cairns and then I went overseas, did a lot of stuff, but I certainly didn't imagine that I would be here. But I wouldn't go back to then because I didn't know anything about myself. I didn't like myself at all. And let me tell you, I was physically gorgeous at 22, beautiful, tall, slim, really, you know, pretty gorgeous, but didn't like myself, so it didn't make any difference. Mm. Now I like myself a lot better and I've got 52-year-old wrinkles and <laughs> flabby bits. But you're still gorgeous. you got right. a sparkle in your eye. I have. <laughs> now, Louise, <clears throat> if people want to work with you, mm-hmm. how do they find you? Well, you can look on my website, louisegeary.com can contact me on my mobile if you're in Brisbane, 0423-968-112 or look for my um, Facebook page, Sacred Feminine Connection. Awesome. Louise, thank you so much. Thanks, thank you for being my first in-studio guest. It's a pleasure. I've loved it. Very fun. exciting. And next week we'll have someone equally as fantabulous. So thank you for joining us for Once Upon a Time. We are over and out.